0: this idea of pre-planning something like oh i came up with a clever name let's fit four sermons that work to that clever name and so i really worry about that kind of stuff because i see a lot i know a lot of people do it and i'm not trying to put anybody down but it just seems too forced for me creatively for me it's too hard for me uh so I, i'm just there's a lot i mean some people they have that that uh, creative ability as a pastor i do not um which is weird because I think I do a lot of graphic stuff. I think when it comes to art, I'm very subjective. I love movies, love, love creative arts, but I'm not very creative when it comes to putting things with the Bible together. Mainly because, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty an emotional type guy. So when, when God starts to work something out of me, I start hashing out a lot of questions to God. And I start putting together all these questions, questions that I have, things that I've seen in the Bible that are contrary to the things we see in the church. And because uh, anytime I think I see things contrary, I start to ask questions. Now I'm going to tell you something: uh, if you want to be disliked in the church, ask a bunch of questions, because that will get you on the enemy list pretty quick. If you ask questions why people believe what they believe, you will fi- find out real quick that nobody wants to be challenged in what they believe. They just want to be left alone to believe whatever it is they want to believe, uh, which is fine. Listen, hey, I'm not in to get in a fight. There's no God in that. Uh, However, I do, I, I, I like posing questions. I like challenging the status quo, especially, and many of you know, like the way that we see things today, like I see churches growing and I see them doing a lot of good things. But I also don't see necessarily the church the Bible talks about. And maybe that explains why we don't get the results in our community and our nation and in our world. I mean, tell me, you tell me why that we're probably only reaching 30% of this city. You tell me why. I mean, churches are growing left and right. I'm sure you watch Facebook. They are like, I mean, like they have got social media down packed. They can tell you every time their prayer service is going to happen, they've got the nifty cool-looking logos. They've got the cool-looking media stuff. they got all that junk, all right? I mean, we've never been more prettier than we are right now. Make no mistake about it. We build beautiful buildings. We have beautiful media. We have, uh, uh, man, I'm telling you, man, there are, listen, I've been part of stuff where like, man, they've got like workout clubs just for pastors so pastors can look more beautiful. Because maybe you don't want to look at an ugly pastor. You know, I, don't, I mean, they got all kinds of stuff out there. And so I begin to ask all these questions and stuff. And again, so the series are really going. It's not really a series. And a matter of fact, I'm going to give you a little, a little tidbit of, of what, what I, I'm going to call it. I'm going to call it the cookbook. All right? And, and uh, it's not about cooking. We're not going to get into the Daniel Fast stuff. We're not going to get into fasting. We're not going to get into, uh, hey, we should eat fish because Jesus ate fish. Uh, we're not going to get into that stuff. The cookbook actually came from an idea. I don't know if you've seen it. It's a PG movie. Uh, called uh, The Lady in the Water, and it's M. Night Shyamalan uh, who wrote this fairy tale for his kids. And in this fairy tale for his kids, uh, this man who is a writer is supposed to meet this person who is literally sent there to stir up within the gift within him. And um, in, in trying to find out who this writer is, this guy who's looking for him sees this book, and it says the cookbook, and he, like, totally discards it as being anything. And when he asks him what it is, he goes, it's really just my thoughts. It's really just my thoughts on, like, world stuff and things like this. And she begins to tell him this story about how um, this, these thoughts, will be, a man will grab this, and he's going to read it, and it will sit on his bookshelf. And one day a kid is going to pick it up, and it will become the seeds to his many great thoughts. And so all this is, is, is uh, I, I, I want to draw a comparison to what I see in the Bible and to what I see today. And I want you to ask the questions. I want you to have some self-discovery here because I, here's what I feel like. I feel like if I tell you what the truth is, like all you're still going to get is anything you could get at any other church. The, 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 the work of the pastor is not to teach you so that you learn. The work of the pastor is to teach you how to learn. All right, because once you start to get it in for yourself, once you start to lead your own self into the scriptures, right, you won't need me. Now, wait a minute, Pastor. If we don't need you, how are you going to have church? But that's the point, guys, because when you don't need me anymore, it's when you'll create church. When you don't need me, you will be the church, right? Well, i always kind of need you. No, you won't. Kids grow up. Paul said, when I was a child, I did this child's do. I don't know about some of you, but I've been paying bills for a long time right now. I don't need my mom and dad. There was a time I desperately, you know, I enjoy their friendship, but I don't need their finances. I don't need to live off them anymore. Now, there was a season where I did for a long time, but not anymore. There's a part of growing up that we all have to do. And my part as a pastor is to equip you to do that, not keep you in that same place, and definitely not leave you comfortable if you're going to stay there, all right? Because this, we already know, we already make fun of the 30 year old who wants to live at home. We boot them jokers outside the house, get out. So, my nephew, I told the story here before we even started church. You know, I gave my nephew a hard time because he was dating this girl to whom he said on Facebook, man, man, I, I can't wait to live the rest of my life with you. So, I like Facebook, I thought this was just an obvious question, man, hey, you got engaged. And he was like, no. And I was like, you just told her you're gonna live the rest of your life. And then I started thinking, that brother better get it together because I know he still is with his mom. You can't be telling people you're gonna live with the rest of your life. Where? In your room at your house with your mom? <laughs> no, bro. You better have a plan. Listen, I've been there. I've lived with my mom and dad, with my wife and kids before. Listen, I, I get it. It gets hard. Life is hard. Life show you curveballs, man. And it happens. No big deal. But I'm gonna just tell you, you gotta start preparing. You gotta think. You gotta like, have some plans. You gotta develop, man. You gotta have a plan. Even if that's gonna be the case, by gosh, you better have a plan to get out. Why? Because that's part of being a man. There's things contrary. There's things where we say one thing, but we really see another. And I want to bring that out. Next week we'll be talking about something that. It's gonna sting. It's gonna sting. And over the next few weeks we're gonna talk about some things that're gonna sting. And I just want you to be prepared for it. So if you're missing, it's okay. I understand. I understand. Not all of us. I mean, I, I remember the girl I helped out this weekend who cut herself. We're getting ready to pour peroxide. I'm like, it's peroxide. It's not even gonna hurt that bad. I mean, it wasn't even bleeding. What's there to infect? It's got to break the skin, sweetie. I mean, <laughs> and I mean that's how we are sometimes, right? Oh, it's gonna hurt. It's gonna hurt so bad. Uh, I just, you know what? We'll just leave it. <laughs> we'll just with some water, dirt, buff it out. It'll be all right. Yeah, that's how we are. This week, we'll 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 stay in in uh, in our whatever you want to call it, our study of Jesus. We're back in Luke chapter six. We're going to pick it up in verse 12, but next week we will start the cookbook, and it's about 12 or 13 weeks long, and uh, these are things that I've been, I want to not preach them now. Like, I tell you, I'm so excited to talk about it, or maybe get it out, that I've already written next week's sermon, which never happens. Like, I was already busy writing and writing and writing, and so uh, I had to condense it down to make sure I I kept it within a decent time so we could get out, you know. So we'll pick up, we're in Luke 6 this morning. I'm going to pick it up at verse 12. I'm going to tell you, as the oldest of three brothers and the firstborn of my parents, I'm not going to lie, I've always been made to feel special. As the firstborn, oldest, I don't know whether whether it's because I've always had to be responsible for my younger brothers or because of tragedies that have happened in my life that I I tend to jump when most people would stay. And, And I'm not saying that I'm special. I'm saying that I've been made to feel that way growing up. Uh, Whether it's been at times when my baseball team won the game or I've been rewarded for good behavior, there have been times in my life that people uh, around me have impressed upon me that in at least the moment, at least, that I was special to them. Even this past uh, week, I saw uh, uh, one of my friends from high school who posted a... Thing about sports and about how their child no longer want to play because of coaches and politics and things that happen with sports but they're sticking in it and it's like yeah and the, the title was like how a coach robbed my passion and I mean I was like listen I don't want to I said you know my past and this is a person I don't really talk to a lot I said you know my past and I know you see on Facebook where I'm at today you know that I was like the worst kid I was like in elementary school, I was in band. They told me I was never going to be, I had no musical talent whatsoever in my life. Teachers told me this, right? Uh, By the time I got into uh, uh, middle school, I was told that I was going to end up in prison. By the time I was in high school, uh, um, I was told by teachers that I was I would never amount to anything I said man turns out, you know what Back in the 90s. I ended up uh, getting paid to make an album I didn't even have to pay for the album; somebody paid me to cut We basically had a label sign us and we made our own album and I got to play on TV And I've since become a worship pastor and a pastor I've been married for 20 years. I'm like nobody steals your passion There's nobody on the planet that you allow to steal your passion And then somebody messaged me behind that, right? And goes, I didn't want to bring this up, but hey, I see where you're at now. And, and this is a person who knew me really well. I see where you're at now, and I'm so impressed with your life. And, I, you know, and it began to tell me this rough part of hers and saying how she'd gone through divorce. And it's been really hard because they still live in the same town. And I understand how small that town is, and it's really hard. And it's been embarrassing. It's sucked and drained a lot of the passion out of her and her life and began to say how much an inspiration my life and my marriage and my kids and all this have been, even just seeing that on Facebook. And she said one thing, and this is what I said. This is one of those things where those moments, right? Then she says this, I knew then you were different. I'm like, at the time, I'm, honestly, as I'm reading, I'm going, why did somebody say something? <laughs> because what? I want to be affirmed. I want to, make, I want to feel like that. Don't we all? Don't we all want to feel special? Right? Don't we all want that? I mean, so I came home and told you. I said, man, she said she knew I was different. I told you. <laughs> I told you. Right? There are moments where we feel special. There are moments like that where life just captivates for a second. We feel, man, God made me different. And I think, and listen, I think every parent's responsibility is to make their child feel that way. Don't you ever tell your child what they can or can't do. You, man, you speak life into them. Man, doesn't Christ make you feel special? Let's pick up now verse, in chapter 6, verse 12 through 16. One day soon afterward, Jesus went up on the mountain to pray. And he prayed to God all night. At daybreak, he called together all the disciples. He chose 12 of them to be the apostles. Here are their names. Simon, whom he named Peter. Andrew, Peter's brother. James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Mathis, Thomas, Matthew. I kind of added Matthew and Thomas together. That's weird. Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the zealots, Judas, son of James, Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed him. Now, listen, everything begins here. And if we really want to narrow it down, it starts at verse 12, specifically with prayer. Jesus didn't make any rash decisions. He prayed and he didn't just say a prayer before the meal. Hey, you know, God, would you help me pick some of these dudes out? And like that was it. No, he prayed all night. How many of us can say this is what we do when we're facing tough decisions? We wait up all night and we just pray before the Lord. No, that's not me. Can't raise my hand there. Why is it that prayer seems so dreary and so uninviting? Why is it that prayer, which might be the physically most easiest thing to do, is so difficult to commit ourselves to? And listen, I've made all kinds of excuses. Nobody's pointing a finger here that I can't say. I, and I, I like threw down some excuses right here uh, uh, that, I, that I have probably said, or at one time or have said. Uh, how about this one? I don't have time to pray. I am way too busy. I don't got time. Well what about early in the morning? I'm sleeping. right? Pray all night. Man, five minutes feels like forever. Well, that's only me, right? I'm the only one that feels like five minutes is like for real. Like, I just prayed for seven generations of my family in five minutes. Like, I mean, that's how I feel. I don't have forever. How about this? One day I'll commit myself more to prayer, but right now I just can't. One day, I love, uh, there's another movie that says uh, someday. Like, someday is just a code word for never. Uh, One day I'll commit myself to prayer, but right now I just can't. Or how about this one? God, I've got kids. Enough said Cause ain't no getting no peace and quiet. Like as soon as I get up, I, like creak the door. Ah, oh my gosh. My problem is the dogs. So I get up first thing. They hear me creeping up. <laughs> Dude, it's four in the morning. You don't need to get out. You're good. Sleep like the rest of the kids in the house. Or how about this for a little bit more honesty? God, I don't want to pray because truthfully, I don't feel special. I feel small and insignificant. It's not like you've answered the last few prayers I've given you. Oh, nobody gets bitter at God. How about this, God, I don't want to read because I am angry and I'm bitter at you for circumstances in my life that you could have prevented or controlled. Now, those are mine, guys. I'm going to tell you right now, I don't have to guess at where that comes from. Those are mine. You ain't never been angry at God? Man. You don't think God can control your circumstances? God could totally change your life? He totally can So why doesn't he? You never question that? Man, if you don't get angry at that, there's no wonder we're not winning lost souls. Because how are you going to relate to people who feel like that? Which is a lot of lost people. A lot of lost people are just bitter and angry because they know if there's a God, then God could have changed my circumstances. And I'm going to tell you something right now. You know, the funny thing about free will and all this stuff when we talk about free will, I there's a total tangent here, but as I'm thinking about this, I can't help but say it. It's so funny to me about Christians who, who strengthen, well, you know, we have free will, we have free will, we have free will. Ask the person who's struggling so bad and who's in a ditch so low if they want free will. You know what they want at that moment? That moment, what they want is God to do whatever it takes. They want God to take away their will, take away their nature, and put them in the position of success. Because at the end of the day, what do we realize is happening if we keep going down the free will road? We're going to die unless God intervene. Unless God intervene, we're going to die. So we get bitter and we get angry. Does that sound familiar? I mean, like I said, I'm not better than anyone in the room. I can relate to you. But there are a couple of things that you you, you should know. First, for those who say they're busy or that prayer is too time-consuming, your problem isn't prayer. Let's just address that right off the bat. Because I think most people, really, this is what they're going to fall under. I don't have time. My life is busy. i gotta pick, I got to do I that. Gotta, I gotta, I gotta. Your problem is the cross. The prayer closet is for those who desire to lay down their life at the cross and be resurrected a new creation in Christ. Every time we enter into the prayer closet, our old self isn't allowed to be there. We don't get to take the old flesh into the prayer closet. It won't survive. That's why, like you ever, uh, you've heard me say before, if I, stake, if I spend 30 minutes in prayer, 15 of it was the cross. 15 minutes of it is the old flesh dying out. And why do I call it the old flesh? Because it's the flesh that says that my life is more important than my time in the prayer closet. So it's trying to uh, go ahead and bullet point my life. It's saying, hey, what are these other things that I have to do right now that are more important than talking to God right now? Don't you know that you are more important, Jim? So your, your things that you have going on right now that, that's taking up the first 15 minutes of your prayer time right now is more important than God. So we're putting those things first in prayer. And so I'm fighting constantly. As soon as I go to the prayer closet itself is coming out of me. It's pouring out of me. Because I know any time that I'm going to bow my knees low before God, the first thing that's going to die is the thing God didn't put there. Every time. The old self, why? Because the old self is dishonest. It's not forthcoming. It's just plain selfish. The flesh hates the prayer closet. It sees that it's death because it is. God will not recognize, listen, God will not recognize what he did not create. The the best thing I've ever read over the subject of the idea of the false self or the flesh uh, is through Brennan Manning's book, Abba's Child. And his second chapter, which I think is a required read for anybody who's a Christian, is called The Imposter. And I'm just going to give you a piece of it because it's so unbelievably gut-wrenching truth. I've never heard anybody be able to write it and express it like he can. Brennan says this, The imposter is a classic codependent. To gain acceptance and approval, the false self suppresses or camouflages feelings, making emotional honesty impossible. Living out the false self creates a compulsive desire to present a perfect image to the public so that everybody will admire us and nobody will know us. I'm going to stop right there and just say this. How many times have you ever heard somebody, well, nobody really knows me. That's because we've never seen the real you. You hide that from everybody. You veil that from everybody. Even the Lord you try. The imposter's life becomes a perpetual roller coaster ride of elation and depression. Sound familiar? I'm up one day, but I read a few things, I'm down the next. I can never live in joy because I'm constantly one or the other. The false self buys into outside experiences to furnish a personal source of meaning, the pursuit of money, power, glamour, sexual prowess. Recognition and status enhances one's self-importance and creates the illusion of success. The imposter is what he does. For many, this is Brandy, he says. For many years, I hid my true self from my performance in ministry. I constructed an identity through sermons, books, and storytelling. I rationalized that if the majority of Christians thought well of me, then there's nothing wrong with me. The more I invested into ministerial success, the more real the imposter became. The imposter prompts us to attach importance to what has no importance. Clothing uh, with a false glitter what is least substantial and turning us away from what is real. The false self causes us to live in a world of delusion because the imposter is a liar. Oh, everything is fine. Everything's good. How are you doing? Oh, man, it's all great. That's a lie. I say that, so I want you to know or think that about me. And and because we say stuff like that, well, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Because I don't want to let you in, because I don't want to be honest, because it'll get awkward if I get honest, right? And then we start having this whole conversation plan in our head of why we're not being honest, because we're justifying our dishonesty. The self is so, the flesh is so complicated and so sophisticated. Uh, uh, it's surprising. We're not as dumb as we think we are because this imposter that lives within us that we're constantly battling with is a genius of an illusionist. He's a master illusionist. He fools even ourselves. We think we are those things. And like he said, the more we invest in those things, the more we become it. We make time for what we deem important. It has become important to us because our flesh has decided it so. That's why your first 15 minutes are all about you and not about God. Your flesh decides who's important. You are, even above God. That's That's what it does. It spiritually makes no sense to value the time and words of flawed people over the time and words of God. The affection of people are like the wind. You never know what you're going to get from one day to the next. But with God, they are the same yesterday, today, and forever. With people, the truth is rare. But with God, it's the only thing that flows from His lips. Why wouldn't you go to it? Why wouldn't you run to that? I mean, who am I going to meet after the service this morning? The real you or the imposter? The one that's going to be honest about where you're at in your life. When we talk, we are real friends. The ones that you don't have to wear a veil to see. Or am I going to meet the person who's always going to be like, everything is good, everything's is but I just love you. I'm just okay. Everything is good. What can't, can't, can't imagine why the lost think we're hypocritical. They know better. They know better. Am I going to see the real you're the imposter? The you that God has created that is flawed, but you've been made righteous and holy through God's saving grace, or the imposter who tells me anything and becomes anything, so you can feel like you fit in. And listen, I'm not just saying that to you. I'm trying to give everything in my life to be that, to be honest. I want want absolute freedom, but to have it requires so much pain in being honest And I'm right there with you, trying to bring the imposter within me to Jesus. Every time I go to prayer, it's a struggle. You've heard me say it. I tell you, the first 10 minutes of my whole, I'm like, and then I'm depressed, right? I'm struck to guilt. Why? I just spent the first 10 minutes. Why can't I just start praying, God? Why is every time I have to go to prayer, I'm, I'm, I'm beaten down by the imposter within me who says that my life is more important, who riddles me with the stupid trivia things of the day of why, oh, I should do this, and maybe if I do this. And the whole conversations that I play, in my head that you know because when people make you angry you're like oh I should have said this right even that shows up at prayer every time I go it's a struggle the imposter within me doesn't want to go and every time I go I have to bring the hammer and the nails and nail him back up to the cross and crucify him every time the imposter resists and it's no different with you We have to return to prayer and to becoming a praying people. Everything has to start there. Jesus prayed all night over the choices he would have to make. And he is the son of God. Let, Let that sink in. The son of God required to pray all night just so he can make 12 decisions. Think about that. And if Jesus, to make 12 decisions, had to pray all night, how much should you be praying? If Jesus interceded all night for those to whom he'd call, what does that say about those whom he called? And the value they have. I mean, he would later go on to say to his disciples, just to make sure you get this and understand this, in John 15, 16, you didn't choose me, I chose you. Oh, I prayed for you all night. I picked out which ones I was going to pick. All night long, I prayed about it. I made sure that the decisions I were going to make were covered and lathered in prayer. You didn't choose me. I chose you. Are you struggling with how God might view you? Because here's the thing. This passage just wipes out any idea that you're some random person that's come to Christ. Jesus spent all night praying over his choice of 12 individuals. Don't you think he's prayed about you? The Bible says that Jesus is before the throne even now interceding on behalf of us. So take comfort that this isn't by accident that you're saved and sanctified to be the saints of God. You've been chosen. You exist for a purpose greater than your own. You know, that's one of the hard parts people have when they walk away from the military. Because people understand there, there is a stigma to the military. One thing the military is very good at driving home is the idea that when you come in, you belong to nothing. So you, as America, we, oh, you belong to the American dream, and, and that, kind of, that patriotism is kind of inbred into you because everything you see on TV, everything you see your parents, America's great, America's beautiful, America's this. And so you, you have that sense of patriotism, and then you join, something, but you still feel like, oh, I'm just a person in a small town, I haven't really done anything. Uh, or a person in a big town, still haven't done it. those kind of things like that. And then you join the military because the military tells you this. Why don't you be a part of something special where you matter, where even the smallest people matter? Because if you're not on the line next to your friend, if you're not right there next to it, you can be a part of the 3% who go into battle, who go into these things and go do the hard stuff. And some of us get that sense of, man, yeah, because I'm not doing anything. I want to be a part of something bigger. I want to be a part of something greater. I want to be a part of something that's great. I want to feel like I'm making a difference. I mean, I mean, how many of you, when we get to time to Veterans Day and Memorial Day, we start quoting Reagan. You know that uh, 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 the the men and women of the armed forces don't have to worry about if they make a difference. There's a lot of different uh, I think uh, ways that people say that quote. They'll say Marines. They'll say Army. They'll say whatever they, their branch they are. But he's talking about the, the people who are in the military. They don't have to worry about making a difference. They're in the military. Everything they do is a difference. The reason you have state freedom and all those things is because they're on the wall, they're doing the, they're doing the mundane jobs. Some of them are just mundane jobs, but they got to get done. So that we exist as the free world, so that we put fear in everybody, all our enemies. So, I mean, like, and so these kids buy in, and then you get out. And the first thing they struggle with civilian life. And they struggle with civilian life because they don't feel special anymore. They were part, of, think about what they were a part of. I'm gonna, I'm gonna tie it in. They were a part of a group where everybody dressed the same, everybody looked the same. Yeah, they're all different colors, but nobody really looks like that when you're in. Everybody's green. It's just how it is. They were a part of a tradition. You go, you go ask the Navy, they'll tell you all the Navy traditions. You go ask the Marine Corps, I can tell you, Chesty Puller. Uh, I can start going through some of the Medal of Honor winners. I can start going through some of that. Man, I think they're going to try to come in. Somebody want to stop that? Because I don't think she probably needs to be walking to see if she can come in. Oh, I think they're going to go. Who knows? Welcome to Mosaic, you know? Um, But they're a part of a... They're part of something, right? And they know this history, and they're part. Of, all of a sudden, the, the battles and victories of the past tradition of the service belong to them, right? So, like, when I talk about, you know, even when I got in, Chesty Puller is a guy that was around during World War II. And he had won so many battles up to this point. He's one of the few that has won, like, Navy Crosses and Medal of Honors and all this kind of stuff that he's won. I mean, it just Ridiculous, and, and his name is not Chesty, but that's what they called him, Chesty Puller, because he was a big, very proud type man. And he was the kind of man that said, you know, hey, Chesty, you're surrounded. Great. That means we can shoot anywhere and kill people. Awesome. I mean, he was like that kind of guy. So if you're in the military, it's like the kind of guy you like. But let me tell you something. So all of a sudden, his history becomes my own. His victories become mine. His stories become mine. Why? Because I'm kind of grafted into once a Marine, always a Marine. Right, you think it's any different with Christianity? Like to me, the easiest thing to do is to try to. It, we and that's why I feel called for the veteran side of things because veterans are looking for that thing again. They want to be a part of something bigger. They want to be a part of a grand vision, a grand idea, a tradition, a legacy. Wait a minute! Aren't the battles of the Old Testament victories? Don't those victories yours? Don't you lay hold of their promises when you need them? I mean, isn't, isn't that a part of your traditions, your heritage? Right? Don't I pass that down? The victories that happened in my life, I get to pass that down to my kids, man. Let me tell you about the God who saved me from this. And you know what they start doing? They start praying about the God who saved their dad from this. You know one of the greatest things that happened, there's no about prayer working, about about imputing that in and, and it being a tradition that's carried on in the victories that have happened in our life. My daughter Reese, who's seen the victories in our life, who's, who's grown up a, a lot around many of you uh, since she was little. I mean, when we moved here in 2009, she was just, we held her the whole time, right? And so she's, she's been grown up here. Most all of you know her, right? And so when she was at faith a couple of years back, she had this little kid. And she goes, we have to come. We have to pray for him, Mom. Why? He came in crying today. Well, why was he crying? His parents are getting a divorce. Now, this is like first grade. This is first grade. You might want to help him again, more. I love it. I love it. It's different. People don't look at restaurants as churches. That's okay. says um, his parents are getting divorced, and then we pray. It breaks my heart. Little first grader, bawling his eyes out over his parents. So, fast forward. Teacher, Meet the teacher just the other night. And they've got him in public school now. And she saw him there. And she goes, Mom, look. And she sees him. And she goes, both his parents are together. They're back together. And I'm going to tell you, your victories become your children's victories. She believes in prayer because she sees God answers prayer. Now, she's seen God not answer prayer. But come on. She believes in a God who answers. We pass that on. We pass that on, right? God, God, we are special. You are special. God didn't pray. God didn't pray all the times He prayed. All the He didn't die so that you could not be special. Right? And the saddest part to me, and I'm about to break into a little bit of like the future weeks to come in uh, uh, because this has been a rant and rave of mine for a long time. God has made you a masterpiece, an original, your own. I mean, how many times have you heard somebody talk about, you know, your eye makes you different. Your eyes are different than anybody eyes on the face of the planet. Your fingerprints are different than anybody else on the face of the planet. And yet you, you, we have this innate desire to conform to everything else around us. You wonder why the world doesn't take the church seriously because it can't tell the difference. We look just like it. And we don't celebrate that which makes us unique because we're so immersed in the culture. We're so immersed into it that we're a part of it. Instead of being in it and not of it, we're just in it. And we figured out a way to make church work in it. That's a whole future thing. I'm going to get into that. That's like three or four weeks down the road. But I... I think one of the things where I've connected a lot with younger adults, uh, especially when I went up to Terrell, one of the things they just like cling to me when I was up in Terrell this a few weeks ago was that quit being like everybody else. Be you. I don't need another kid coming out of seminary that sounds just like all their professors. I need you, your ignorant mouth, tongue, and everything else you don't know, asking questions, searching out the answers. I need Lewis and Clarks. I need people who aren't scared to be wrong, fail, or die we got enough people who go with the flow. We don't need any more of those. I need some fish who swim up water. By the way, that's how they procreate. You want to procreate? Some of us are going to have to learn to swim upstream. Man, that's the Holy Spirit. You are special. God didn't die so you could not be or so you could be just like everything else. You are different, and you should celebrate it. If anybody should celebrate diversity, it's the church. I mean, it's preached all over the Gospels and the, and the Epistles. And man, we, we struggle so hard. We just want to be like everybody else because to be different is to be ridiculed. But I'm going to tell you there's no other way. The Jews were ridiculed. Go read the Bible. Not only were they ridiculed, they were persecuted. And it still takes place. They're different. And it's not bad to be different. You're set apart for greater things. You exist for a purpose greater than your own. You have a destiny. Don't you let nobody think different. And it's different than mine. And the significance of it and how it affects the world is not for you to judge or anybody else. Some of you might go on to speak to great crowds. Good for you. And some of you won't. And good for you. That's okay. You are part of the cog in the wheels just like the elderly woman who was given the two cents. We've talked about it in here before. She didn't know anybody was looking at her, but Jesus will go on to use this woman to teach on that principle of a giving from the heart. She probably went her whole life all the way into heaven without ever realizing that we would still talk about her today. Obedience. That's the only mark of success for the Christian. Not church growth. Not how many people we influence, not the level of credibility we have with someone else. Obedience is the only level of, uh, or only mark of success to the Christian. Let's look at this last little bit with me now. Verses 17 to 19. When they came down from the mountain, the disciples stood with Jesus on a large level area surrounded by many of his followers and by the crowds. There were people from all over Judea and from Jerusalem and from as far north as the seacoast of Tyre and uh, Sidon. They had come to hear him and be healed of their diseases, and those troubled by evil spirits were healed. Everyone tried to touch him because the healing power went out from him, and he healed everyone. Here's a quick reminder, guys. Not even Jesus stayed up on the mountain. Don't build on the mountain. Be a people that You, you journey. You, like nomads, you walk. You're almost like the Exodus Jews where you just keep walking, man. I know you're looking for a home, a place to plant, a place to stay. Everything is steady where everything is bedrocked in, but that's not how we are. We have mountains, and we have valleys, and we're to coexist between the two. We're, it's okay. It's okay. Jesus didn't stay up on the mountain. He, his ministry existed in the valley, actually, where the people with great needs were. Mountains are great in our life, but know this. We were a people made for valleys. Because why? Because we've experienced the mountain. We bring hope to those who haven't. People who haven't experienced the mountain in their life yet, the, the, the Zion, whatever, they, they're kind of, you know, basically symbolism here. But people who haven't experienced those things, that's what we're here to do. People from all over came to hear him. They came to be healed. Listen, has anything changed? Not, the ministry of Christ has not changed. People still, they don't come to hear me. You come to hear Jesus. Hopefully you hear it through me, because if not, you should be where you can. You should be where you can, because if you're not here in Christ through me, you're not growing in Christ, you need to find the place where you are. And if that's not here, that's not a bad thing either. You should be at a place where people pray. You should be at a place where you see people healed. I mean, when we look at our community, our nation, our world, I don't think anything's changed. Our world needs Jesus now more than ever. The only Jesus they're going to get is the church, the bigger picture, that's why our pursuit to return to God is more important than ever because the world is in dire need of Jesus. And hopefully they will see the image of him in his church. Because that's the only place that's tangibly or physically going to be seen is in his church. This is why Jesus spent so much time in prayer over every decision that needed to be made because there are no small decisions. There are none. How we bear a cross, how we walk with God, and how the world sees our walk is of great importance. It is. These things require connection with God that's unique and deep, and there's only one way. We've got, we got to return to prayer. There's no other way. We have to be a church of prayer. We have to be the house of prayer. No other way. That doesn't mean that we have corporal, a corporate time for prayer. That's another thing i going to beat the drum over. It means that we are literally a people of prayer. That not, it, man, can, I'm going to tell you right now, to the pastor or to the, to the church that can conquer prayer, that's where revival will show up. You want to see healings? You want to see the book of Acts stuff come out? Pray. And before you judge a church, I'm going to tell you right now, the power of a church is found in prayer, not in its finances. Now, I'm going to tell you, they can mask a whole lot by their finances. Um, it's the same reason, we, I talked about this before with you with Haggai. If you go into Haggai and it says, when the house of God isn't right. didn't say that it wasn't built. He was saying, it, he was saying that the houses of its people were nicer than the houses of God. Mm-hmm. That the people had their houses in order when the church wasn't in order. That's what he was saying. He said, don't you see, God is trying to give you a sign. He's not like, it didn't like he plagued the land. He didn't plague the land. He said this, here's, here's what I've done to try to make it where you can see it. He said, Haggai says, do you notice that you're working so hard, twice as hard, to reap half as much? First of all, when you reap what you sow, you sow one thing, you reap what? At least one more, right? And in the sowing and reaping process, often when we plant a seed, if I plant an apple seed, I get an apple tree, right? Well, how many seeds do I get from that one apple seed? A whole bunch, right. But is that the way we see it today with outreaches and everything else in the church? boy, I'm really going far into my deals for the cookbook thing. No. And God's trying to say, it's not like like we don't see fruit. We see fruit. The question from Haggai is, why are you content with that? Why are you okay with that? Why doesn't that bother you? Therein lies the question. Well, it was all for the one. Really? Because I'm pretty sure God said he loves the whole world. I mean, everything in the book of Acts screams against that kind of stuff. I mean, and you can't tell me there aren't thousands of people around here that couldn't, if, if God decided to move again in the book of Acts that a thousand people out here that had never heard the gospel would come and hear and, and be totally renewed and transformed. That there's, there is, that there's a thousand people here that have not. We always assume because we're in the Bible Belt that there isn't those people here, but they're here. Or they, have missed, they don't have any idea really what, you know what Jesus is to them? It's the stuff you've been talking about is about all it is. And they watch your life, and they see the regular life of, of most Christians, which is a hypocritical life. It really is. Because most Christians aren't honest. They go in, they tell you, oh, man, Jesus is great. Everything's dead. It's all going to be once you give your life to Christ. It's going to be so much better. Dude, it's going to be hard. I don't know about you, but the hardest thing I've ever done is be a Christian. Hardest thing I've ever done is try to keep my honesty, keep my integrity. Because was a, when I didn't have a, a moral conscience, which I, I call that the Holy Spirit, right, this Holy Spirit within me to say, hey, probably feel bad about that, right? I was like, I'll tell you whatever you need to hear to make the sale, to make your friend, to whatever. I can be whoever I need to be. I, I became the jack of all trades. I became whoever I needed to be to make whatever friends I needed to have. Literally in high school. I mean, I, it's, that was me in high school in a nutshell. Whoever I need to be friends with, I became whatever I needed to become. You ever notice that we say that a lot, in science proves it, that we adapt to our environment. If that is natural for you, what do you think the church is struggling with then? If that's natural, human nature is to adapt to its environment, to survive. What do you think you've become? And then you wonder why where the power is in the church? I'm telling you, we have to return. It's more important now than it ever has been. If we're ever going to become the image of Christ to this world, we have to bring all that we are, the imposter included, to the cross of Jesus Christ and crucify it it's only then that we'll find the resurrection power that will transform that which was dead and bring to life again in Christ. And isn't that what you want? I mean, if not, what are the choices you're making? What are you praying about? Are you struggling with your own imposter? Have you brought your flesh before the Christ to be crucified? Or have you kept it a secret struggle? There are no secrets before the Lord. He shines a light in everything he does. Life, the light just bleeds out of him. And here's the thing is, man, we talked about it during Wednesday. There's no way you get to be around God and things won't surface to light eventually. Because you can't keep the light in your life and, and the things that you're trying to hide, eventually he will shine a light over there. The great thing about God is his grace. In his grace, he desires for you to just take care of it with him. Bring it to me. Let's take care of this together. All right? If you can't that way, that's why he, he let James, through the Holy Spirit, confess your sins to one another. Why? Well, wait a minute. Yeah, find out who your real friends are, huh? Right? Well, in the church, that's the way it's supposed to be. wonder why we have a, we, That's why we don't have accountability in the church. That's why we don't have a lot of things, because we won't trust the... We're so worried about what somebody's going to hold against us, and it's that fear alone that keeps us from moving forward in Christ. But I'm going to tell you, there's nothing like the freedom of having it all out. Nothing like it. No more burdens It's lifted. It's all out there. And people either like you or they don't, but at least it's all out there. And that's living free. And then the people who love you and know all those things about you, regardless of how dark they might be, and who grant you the grace that Christ has granted you also. Right? Look at how, God, how quick God was to forgive David with Bathsheba. It said that as Nathan said, thou art the man, it says, David fell on his face and repented. And it says, Nathan said, David, I have already, (laughs) that God said he has already forgiven you. It was past tense. He has forgiven you. It's already been done, David. He's forgiven you. And that was, uh, by the way, that was murder and adultery. Uh, Now, I don't know what your darkest secrets are, but I'm praying it's not those. (laughs) All right? I don't think any of you are going to confess to me. I don't think. Anybody's going to confess to me that you got like murder and adultery in your past. And you'd be like, that's your secret sin. Like, I didn't want to tell nobody. But uh, I, I will be shocked a little. right? <laughs> but I will love you and give you grace too. <laughs> I'm just saying, God is good this way. God is good this way. We've got to trust him. The reason we don't trust him is because our imposter, we're struggling. We're struggling with our flesh. The reason we struggle with our flesh is because we're not praying enough. You want to kill that thing, you got to take it to him. You crucify him, he goes, he has to be presented before the Lord. That Him, her, he has to be presented. for. You have to put the imposter before the Lord. And only then, once that's crucified, freedom. Freedom is on the other side. Well, free from what? I feel free right now. Do you? You got secrets, man. You ain't free. You got to closet, it, man. And it's dark up in there. And you got all your stuff up in there. And you ain't let nobody, nobody needs to know that part about my life. Nobody needs that. And it's just sitting back in there. I know. I know. It's hard. It's hard to trust the Lord that all that stuff is going to be that way. It's hard. I get it. I still struggle in prayer. I still struggle. My first 10 to 15 minutes of prayer every single time is a laundry list. Oh, I got all these things I need to do today, God. God, you're just going to have to hurry up and talk. You're going to have to hurry up and say something. And I try to hurry God along. And then a lot of us wonder why God, why I don't really hear God when when I'm praying. I know because you don't talk to him very long. Jesus prayed all night for 12 decisions. I don't know about you, but I've given a, I've taken some very gigantic decisions in my life off about a 10-minute prayer time. Like, well, I prayed this morning. Just want everybody to know. 10 minutes of prayer. I don't tell that part. I just say I prayed this morning, right? Because that's the imposter too. Right? I'm gonna wait till next week. I'm gonna preach too much on future stuff if I don't stop. You need to have your heart ready for the things I'm gonna approach next week (laughs) Uh, because they're gonna question things that you believe. Uh, They question things that I believe. They're not necessarily things I have all the answers to. Um, But I, I, I don't, I don't like warning you. But for some of you, it could put checks and balances. And here's what I, I don't want to happen. I don't want us to look at somebody else that might be doing some of these things and it's if they say they're bad or wrong. I think we all are at different places with the Lord and that doesn't make us closer. We're at different parts of the race. All right, the race is the only way to win is to finish. There is no win. There's no first place and second place and third. There is finishing, all right? Um, I am, many of you know I'm on a search God's glory to bring about community nation and global change I have watched the church function relatively amazing in leadership in administration organization um, finances um, beauty creative arts but I don't see the I've even seen it grow a little but I'm not sure it's growing When you look at it, the nation numbers—they're all going down. But it's funny to me how much churches will say they're growing, and and you see some churches growing. But if the numbers are all going down, how are they growing, or are they trading? Mm -hmm. Which is what I think. And then I'm looking at our country's politics. I don't have to say much there. You already know. Um, I'm looking at the poverty. I'm looking at the need, the giant need that we have for drugs and alcohol. Man, there was some kid in Florida who was so lost on drugs, he knocked a man down and he tried to bite his face off. And there's so much crazy drug stuff out there now. And uh, some of you with, with me in youth ministry, you know, we had kids who would smoke this synthetic pot, and man, they end up in the hospital with seizures. And just, I've seen enough. And here's what I know. I know, because I've been in most of the churches here, especially in our city, to know that the people I'm, I want to go after, they're not anywhere in the churches. But I see them all the time. And, and uh, my question is, how do, we, how do we go back to that place where Jesus was just so relatable to everybody? You ever notice that? Like Jesus, he could go to the Pharisee, who was the, the biggest preacher in town. And totally fit in. And then that dude could go walk right down the street meet the homeless man in the ditch. And they were like best friends. And they saw him as equal. How can we, how do we go back to that? How do we get to a place in our life where the lowest common denominator of, of, our, people, of our, our people, our city, our community, see us as their equal as well as the highest? How can we be Jesus? And so that's what I'm exploring. So when I, the things that we're going to talk about over the next, I think, 10, 12, 13 weeks, I want you to ask questions in your own heart. But I'm, I'll give you some homework, man. i got some questions for you afterwards. And I want you to take that home, and I want you to journal. I want you to have a good time with it. You figure out what God's calling you for with that stuff. I, I just want to impose some thoughts, man. I, I want to show you some contrast between the way things are done now and the way things were done. Contrast in the way we saw Jesus work his ministry by the way, Jesus never did anything public. I now, mean, I, I love this idea, this prayer walk, but I'm going to tell you, Jesus is pretty specific in Matthew 6 that don't do the, I mean, he's pretty specific. Do, when you pray, do not pray in public as those who want to be seen praying, blah, blah, blah. That's not making this a bad thing. Trying to get a community to rally up in prayer is not a bad thing. But how? why is there such contrast between what Jesus said and what we do? And then how come we all just go okay yeah it sounds good why does that appeal to us those are questions i want to ask you those are questions that, that i think you need to hear they're questions that my heart doesn't like because for me as a pastor when i talk about these things especially with other pastors what it means for me is i don't have friends so you are my only friends you tolerate me and you listen to me and uh you endure me praise god praise god let me pray for you um